it, I feel like this would be like making a Spanish tortilla <laughs> with potatoes and all the, you know, everything that goes in, all the glory that goes into a Spanish tortilla and then calling it a frittata, <laughs> which is Italian. <laughs> Right, we're live. Welcome to Money Lap Podcast. I'm Parker Klugman, joined as always by Landon Castle. This is our podcast about all things motorsports. Of course, check out themoneylap.com for the best five minutes of motorsports delivered to your inbox three times a week. We're pretty proud of that. But Landon, we start this podcast, as always, talking about ourselves. Yes. It's the PR lap. We, we jump um, into it? are just lovable creatures and <laughs> talk about racing and we... This is yeah. So the money lap. Uh, what you usually do this part? What am I? Ta- what am I doing right now? <laughs> I don't know. I was let you run. What with am it. I even doing? I just felt like I had to talk. I'm looking at these reviews. We've got some great reviews. We always read, love reading them. So let's hear about it. All right. So no new Apple ones because we haven't really set a goal for everyone. But we are up to 118 and five stars across all 118. So we're just crushing it there. Nice. Spotify. We've got 79 reviews and a 4.9. That's ridiculous. Whoever took our point one of a star. <laughs> um, and then on YouTube, we did have some cool comments from last week's episode. Uh, Haxmeyer said, yo, I'm so glad I found this. I always ran out of NASCAR podcasts by the end of the week. Ye found one to fill the void. Interesting way of writing. Geeky Fast said, keep up the great work. Uh, a win is coming for myself, which is nice of them. But Landon, um, the coolest review we got this week happened to you. In person. Yes. Up in New York City. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, in New York over the weekend, and I was in Soho shopping at Madewell. And <clears throat> um, Aaron at Madewell, when I was buying some clothes, goes, you look a lot like the NASCAR driver Landon Castle. And <laughs> I just kind of was like... <sighs> Well, I am the NASCAR driver named Landon Castle. And he's like, I knew it was you. I knew it. And then he turned to his colleague and said, yeah, this is Landon Castle. And he, and he actually said, um, I love listening to your podcast. So Bam. that was uh, that in itself was even more of a uplifter for me that day um, than even just being recognized in randomly in, in Manhattan. So Awesome. Um, shout out to Aaron. Shout out to Madewell. They've got a great menswear line this fall, winter, twenty twenty three. What did your wife think of this moment when it happened and the podcast was mentioned of all things? I think that um, her attraction for me just was through the roof. I think she was super <laughs> impressed. Um, proud of her husband, and uh, yeah, that. it was a it was a good day all around. That's an awesome. That's the best PR lap we've heard in a while. <laughs> I did have a lot of fans at the track this week have similar sentiments, but that's where you expect it. You don't expect it in New York City in Soho. So Aaron, who might be our only listener up there, we appreciate the support. So that's awesome. Um, should we jump into the big motorsport stuff now? Yeah, let's talk about race weekend. All right. So we'll start in NASCAR. Uh, and the Xfinity Series, where I was in an elimination race for the playoffs um, and unfortunately was not able to make it through, lost out by a couple points. But this was really fascinating, Landon, because I, I, I think there's a lot to dive into. One, mm-hmm. my team and myself had a really, 
really good day. Mm-hmm. But the problem was, on this day, on Saturday, in the NASCAR Xfinity Series, if you wanted to advance to the round of eight, you had to be exceptional. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was really evident to me when we were 12th in practice, which I was pretty proud of because I had not been to the Roval since 2019 in Cup, which is the only mm-hmm. time I've been there. And that's we can dive into why that place is so difficult, but um, it is one of the most difficult places, I believe, to, to get up to speed. We qualified six, and I was like so happy about that. It was like top two in our uh, group for a while. The only problem, Daniel Hemrick and Sheldon Creed qualified <laughs> fourth and fifth. And I was like, come on. And then mm-hmm. uh, we got in the race, and, and obviously Sam Mayer was on the pole. He was super fast. He was able to flip the stages and keep track position where we all had to fight for points, and it sort of just fell in his hands. And so what I took away from this, though, was in the first by the first stage, I did an okay job, but in stage two, it was like Three or four laps in, I found something in turn eight, which I had worked on in the sim even on Friday. I went to the sim for an extra hour and tried to work on this. What I observed AJ doing, but I couldn't figure it out. I finally figured it out. It clicked, and literally the next lap, they're like, you're the fastest car on track. You're the fastest car on track. You're top three speed. Fastest car on track. And I'm like, yep, found it. What was um, it? It was turn eight. Turn seven and eight over the which hill Which turn eight? So turn eight the, the last speedway? one on – is onto the speedway. Turn seven is the one before that. It's the lo- how you approach that hill crest to set up for eight. Mm-hmm. AJ has a very wide line uh, compared to most people who try to cut down low. But when you got low, it, it you end up overspeeding eight every time. But there's this amazing grip strip that if you enter high enough and trust that the car that launches off that hill and launches off that crest is going to land and not slam the wall, you can gain a tremendous amount of speed. Well, hmm. the reason it works is there's a weird grip strip that I found. And that's why AJ does it. And oh. it was an unlock of no, epic proportion uh, worth well, tenths of a second. sets you up for a good angle, too, for off yes. turn eight. And that's why he's so good off eight, and that's where all the speed is. And so, um, yeah, once I figured that out, so my point of bringing all that up was that I, I said to someone afterwards, I said, you know, if we could have just restarted the weekend after lap 23 or whatever when I found that, 22 – uh, we have a chance to win this race, but <laughs> I, like, I had to play catch up and that place is so tough because this is where I want to get your opinion. You were really fast there last year. What I find so tough about that place compared to almost anywhere else we go is there's very few th- uh, points of reference for breaking points and speed mm-hmm. points and that sort of stuff. And so what you find is like turn three and four, five and six, seven to eight. There's no breaking markers. There's no traditional things that you can use and so what i find is it's a very feel based place you have to sort of understand and have like a feel for how much speed can i throw at this corner and trust that it's the max amount for the slip angle of the tire and then slow down to that next apex and i think that's what makes that place just a really interesting racetrack um that can be you know almost sightline wise uh disorienting especially in Mm -hmm. turn one i don't know i mean there's a lot of i I think everybody every driver has a different way of you know, having a point of reference. So I think it's hard to say across the board that that is a particular reason. I I just think that there's a lot, there's just not a ton of opportunities there. It's a lot of corners are very momentum type based corners. Um, You know, just thinking turn one is a tough corner to help break someone into. Um, Not that it's not a passing turn, you know, opportunity. It's just, you know, you can't fire it down in underneath someone into turn one, um, because if you do, your apex comes up quicker, and we've seen you know what happened to Jeb Burton. Um, it's really easy to overdrive that corner and miss. 
um, turn two, three, four, you know, just really round um, radiuses, momentum type corners. So it's just not a ton of passing opportunity. Um, and, and so it can just makes for, I, to me, that's one of the things that makes it a challenging track to get through the field on. Hmm. I think that's a good point, but my, my point on the speed side, mm-hmm. what I found interesting was the biggest unlocks from practice to qualifying was just how much speed I threw in those three to four, five to six, seven to eight area of corners that are very much like you put it there, you know, both are almost decreasing radius style corners, the three and four and five and six. And then sort of, and then well, okay, you, know, so you, let you me, decrease your speed. Oh. And so my, my point there is like, you know, it's like slip angle the tire. It's, it's a type of corner that requires you to have immense amount of trust in how much speed you're throwing to the center of that corner. That makes sense. So I, maybe I'll find another way to articulate that because it is, um, those are corners where you are taking max lateral capability out of the tire, right? So yes. that's a, that's a tough thing at a road course when you're going back and forth, left-handers and right-handers, um, to maximize lateral as opposed to, you know, think road America where you're bombing mm-hmm. it into a bunch of corners with long braking zones. Um, not that lateral isn't, you know, a focus at those that that track but you're just going from like a whole sequence of corners at charlotte that's like turn one two is maxing at my lateral on a left hand turn and then three and four you're maximizing lateral on a right hand turn then you're doing it again in five and six and then seven Mm -hmm. and eight you know and it's just like that's you know that can make it very difficult to find the right you know radius and speed to take that radius i totally understand what you're saying there so Hopefully that plus, let it. me ask you a quick question. Let me ask you a quick question. I'm going to play yeah. a game with you here. Okay. What is your breaking point into turn five? Which one's turn five? <laughs> it's the one off the back stretch from three to four is the long right-hander. Okay. So Double the first right-hander. right-hander, it's the first right-hander of five to six up that hill. And then uh, you go to I want to say it's, you're out kind of on the runoff. Mm-hmm. The runoff is sort of paved. And I want to say it is, um, um, there's an area on your left where the paint starts. Yep. Yep. Um, and I want to say you're starting to break somewhat before where that paint starts. You don't quite get all the way there, but my, and, and okay, you're, you're backing me into the point that you're making, <laughs> but exactly. it's not, it's not a matter of signage to me. It's more like the track shape is why mm-hmm. the references are difficult because for me, I don't think about that corner about lift point and break point. That particular corner, I'm thinking about where is my min speed and apex point. And then I back mm. it up from there. Right. And so I'm looking at that corner and I'm like, my eyes are going to the right and I'm looking at the curbing in turn four. Yep. I think it's turn four, right? No, turn and five I'm, into six. Or turn five. And I'm and I'm yep. looking at the curbing in turn five, and I'm thinking to myself, I, this is where I want to be released from the brake pedal, like, you know, releasing the brake pedal and, and touching throttle to get to turn six, right? Mm. So it's not a threshold braking corner, right? It's not a straight line braking corner. You're braking at an angle. Um, so the actual- I would never use the throttle between five and six. Um, 
Yeah, it's a, you're, you're maybe not. I mean, maybe on qualifying or something like that. But yeah, um, I, to me, it's more. I don't want to be as mechanical as saying, what, "Am I touching throttle or not?" It's just more min speed. Like, where am I trying to place yeah. the car? Um, I mean, that's actually. I know it's on our list to talk about. Like, why is AJ so good at these road courses? In my opinion, where AJ is really, really good, better than anybody else, is his accuracy. He is extremely accurate with things that I'm talking about right here. Like mm-hmm. he knows exactly where he wants to place the car. And that's step one, right? Like you got to know where you want to put the car. He knows exactly where he wants to place the car in every corner. But then what he's really good at in executing that better than anybody else, in my opinion, is when you're entering a corner at 150 miles an hour, 180 miles an hour, if it's the end of the back stretch at road america and you have to slow down to 45 miles an hour mm-hmm. aj knows at 180 miles an hour how much brake he needs to be using to consistently slow the car down to 45 miles an hour at that exact point that yep. he needs to be going 80, 45 miles an hour and then accelerate out of the corner he knows exactly how much brake to use through that entire braking zone without making adjustments to yep his deceleration right that is to me that is the one of the master unlocks of road course racing is when you go to the brake pedal on a road course if you can get if you can go through that entire braking zone without making adjustments to your foot to the brakes right and not feeling like oh i'm using too much brake i'm gonna let off a little bit oh now i'm going too Mm -hmm. fast i'm gonna apply a little bit more pressure like it's those tiny little adjustments that, and you can see it in data, you know, it's yep. I, race fans don't have a lot of access to data, but like you can see a speed trace where, you know, it's a, it, just imagine a line on a graph on a graph going down at an angle and a driver like AJ, his line, his deceleration Perfect. line will just be like straight. You could almost like hold a ruler to it because he's just slowing the car down consistently with no adjustments where, yep a driver that's not as good you'll see variations in that line little bumps in that line because the driver's making adjustments like oh i need to slow down faster or i need to slow down less and they're ma- constantly making adjustments to the brakes um and that is costing you grip and costing you speed and costing you accuracy so like what i saw at the end of the cup race you know we'll just transition right into the end of the cup You're race really here. jumping ahead on here by the way can <laughs> i can i just cut you off for one second so yeah i want to dive into all that because it is super good stuff but you did mm-hmm. just ramroad through our list of topics mm-hmm. <laughs> just yep. so quickly uh just to cap off the xfinity side one driver who did all the things you're talking about really well better than anyone that on this weekend was sam Mayer wins in a must-win position. That was an excellent drive by him. Probably the best of his whole career in NASCAR. Um, you know, really just a stellar job there in terms of being accurate and finding speed. Um, and so with, with that, uh, you know, he found himself in a must-win going on to the round of eight. So impressive by by Sam Mayer. Um, one thing I did tell the – if you listen to last week's episode, I did say that I was going to try a new type of coffee this weekend. And I did try it. And unfortunately, it didn't cause a better result. But <laughs> I did enjoy it. <laughs> I did have my best qualifying of the year. So let's put that. There maybe, you go. Maybe that was what it needed. We got to dial uh, in the, the formula a little bit. 
Yeah, we got to dial in the formula just a tad, but it's uh, it was the Focus Coffee by Four Sigmatic. But my still my favorite is the Think Coffee. You can buy on their website at foursigmatic.com using the code MONEYLAP for 15% off. It is the coffee that has powered me to wins before. It will again in the future uh, once we dial in this, this right ratio of Focus and Think Coffee. Uh, if you want to try that coffee, go to foursigmatic.com. Use the code MONEYLAP, 15% off. Trust me, it's worth it. So as you alluded to here, Landon, in mm-hmm. the Cup Series, A.J. Allmanier wins at the Roval. He was put in this ride earlier this year, announced around this time, actually last year, that he was going to be doing this for college racing with the intention of getting this team into the playoffs, winning a road course, doing what he does so well, and he did that. And you alluded to what makes him so good at road courses. So I was just on a podcast earlier today, Nate Ryan's NASCAR and NBC podcast, which will come out this week. He asked me the same question, and I said, well, Funny enough, we're going to talk about it on the money lap, and Landon has a great view of this. I, I did call you out because um, you were his teammate. Yeah. I gave you reference for this, and I had a very – I basically tried to articulate, maybe not as well as you just did, your point. And what I think is really fascinating is this braking point of being super disciplined and consistent with the brakes. And one of the things that I don't think many forms of racing have this – the Okay, let me rewind that. What makes NASCAR stock cars on road courses so uh, – the braking so important is that these are the longest brake zones in all of motorsports mm-hmm. for many of our places we go. So if you look at turn one in Indianapolis on the road course, that or turn five at Road America are possibly the two longest brake zones in the history of modern-day motorsports. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, nowhere is a car tasked to brake – for 700 meters or 700 feet you know it's like yeah. it just doesn't happen um for example a lot of racetracks we go to they'll have signage for 99 percent of the race cars that go there for breaking points but when the nascar stock cars show up we have to add signs many of mm-hmm. them sometimes from a four all the way to an eight to just have enough signage and therefore the braking zones are where you spend a massive amount of time per lap. And so if you can condense those or be perfect with those or be, as you described, have this amazing ability to know exactly how much to break to that point and be super disciplined and consistent with it, that is going to equal speed. And what the other thing it does is when you're super consistent and you're super you know, disciplined with it, it helps the temps within the brakes. It helps the temps within you know, the, the brake temp transfers to the tires and the air within those tires. It can make the longevity of your car and the speed it can produce better. And so all those things factor into what you're saying, where that is what makes AJ so good at these road courses. Yeah. He's, is extremely high level of accuracy. Um, you know, the, I, I think that the, the, to me, that was a difference maker on him winning the race and not winning the race, uh, particularly talking about the last 15 laps, right? The, yeah. To me, I thought William Byron clearly had a faster car um, or had the capability of being faster, um, but he just wasn't as accurate in those closing laps as AJ was, right? You could see William sort of missing apexes by a couple feet here and there. Um, and it wasn't a lot, but it was just enough that AJ's consistency and his accuracy would always get him those extra two or three tenths when he needed them. Um, and you know, really kept the 24 car from being able to have an opportunity to make a, a real attack. Yep. You, 
you nailed that because I think right then and there, there was a possibility that William was a little bit faster, right, for a short mm-hmm. moment there. But there was no way he was ever going to get to the 16. <laughs> like over in the places that it mattered to pass, he wasn't going to get them. It just wasn't mm-hmm. going to happen. And one of the things I, I talked about earlier today was that, you know, AJ, a lot of fans don't know this, but AJ, when, when I was a young driver coming up in the oatmeal ranks, there was a folklore about him because, and we talked about it maybe a little bit on here, but he was this driver that had, you know, found a way to, to get to the highest level very much on, you know, his ability and ability to win and, in, you know, just performing at high levels and the right opportunities. And it was funny because when you were a young oatmeal driver coming out of karting, you'd be at Skip Barber or any of these places with driver coaches and that sort of thing. And they'd talk about every driver out there. And then there would be AJ Allmendinger. And it was like, he's the class. He's the best there is. He's the best American driver there is at the time. And, you know, in another world, in another time period, he may have been on his way straight to Formula One. He ends up staying over in doing American open wheel, uh, becomes very successful at the end of it. And, you know, Red Bull thinks he's so damn good. He's going to go to NASCAR, which he's never done which is the biggest motorsport in the United States at the time and, you know, be a part of their new massive investment in his team. I mean, it's just an amazing career that he's had mm-hmm. to get to where he is. Um, and I think the reason I bring all that up is that the emotion he showed after, which he's always emotional, but the emotion he showed after winning this weekend was very real. Uh, and I, I text him that because I was just like, man, that that's, that's the stuff people don't always get to see. And a lot of it has to do with the idea that, you know, one, he's in his early 40s. Even being in Cup at this point is pretty amazing. He made all the way back there. But two, there is a lot of rumors out there about what is the future of college racing for him, for if he stays in Cup or not. And, you know, obviously, the guy is a premier-level talent that deserves to be in the Cup Series. But for whatever reason, because of the financial situation within the sport, it can't justify giving him what he needs financially to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, from all intents and purposes, it sounds like potentially he is not going to be in the cup series again next year, um, for, for colleague. And, you know, you saw that in his emotions of thinking, you know, maybe this is the last time he gets to do one of these and be at the highest level winning. Mm-hmm. That's tough. Well, I was, uh, pretty happy for him to see that, uh, in just really impressed once again by his abilities and, um, I don't know. It kind of motivates me to want a road course race. <laughs> like I feel like I can see it. I see why it's good. Um, I think, I think I can articulate it. I think I know why I'd love to, um, you know, it makes me, makes me want to race these road courses and get better at it. And... You definitely should. You should do it. I, the one other thing I'll say is, you know, this situation with AJ, there were some interesting comments in his post race in terms of, you know, colleague racing getting grilled about the financial situation, what they were deciding to do. I do find it disappointing that when you look at, you know, this is no, this is no different to me than the Kyle Busch situation um, in that, you know, these are two competitors that have, should have immense value in this sport. Mm-hmm. Right? should have, should be held to such a valuable level because of their ability to go out there and perform at the highest level and get mm-hmm. wins, which should matter most. And yet they're basically, you know, both in both situations in different capacities are told, you know, your value is not what, you know, the sport can't support what you're really worth. And right. I just think that's a, 
that's a tough situation. Um, and hopefully in the coming years and months and whatever that's solved. But I do find that frustrating. You know, I think that is, mm-hmm. it's not dissimilar to other sports. I'm sure it happens in other ones. I don't know them as well, but to me, that's, that is, uh, it's frustrating to see a guy that damn good, not be in a position to just do whatever he wants. Moving on. <laughs> uh, let's talk about cutting corners. Um, we will do it. I didn't do this at the top, but we should have said we're going to do a whole track limits discussion as well because we both uh, have opinions on track limits. With that, in NASCAR, there is no real track limits other than you can't cut a corner. You can't cut these chicanes, that sort of thing. It's actually mm-hmm. great. I love the, the rulings. The only ruling that's a bit odd is that if you do cut, you have to come to a full stop. Mm-hmm. which is unusual compared to other forms of racing where if you do cut a track, you basically just have to give back the positions or the time you had gained. And it's usually a pretty simple system. Hey, you blow through a chicane and you pass two cars, let them both back by and then restart your, you know, get racing again. Uh, it's kind of like a no harm, no foul sort of situation mm-hmm. in NASCAR. No matter how you end up in there, whether you get pushed in there, <laughs> spun, whatever, if you don't come to a complete stop after going through that area of a chicane, you got to find go to the next zone and come to a complete stop, which happened to Bubba Wallace. Does it seem a bit draconian of a ruling that we have? I don't think so. I think our racing is different <clears throat> than, you know, Formula One and sports car racing. The fields are a little bit more spread out. Uh, we don't have double file restarts in those series. And, um, you know, I think if you could, if, uh, you take uh, Portland last year, for example. There was such a bottleneck of traffic, and it was such a guarantee that there was going to be some kind of spin or incident or you know risk of damaging your car. That and and then especially with the wet weather, there were drivers on restarts that were allegedly intentionally taking the shortcut and coming to a stop and then going again not gaining any track position, but literally just taking themselves out of the risk of getting wrecked. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And obviously you saw, you know, Ross Chastain did something similar at Indy. Um, So I feel like there's the, the, it's not all about just the time gain and time loss. Um, I think that, you know, there's, there's, I don't, I don't think it's that draconian to say, Hey, if you take the shortcut, you have to come to a stop. There's a penalty greater than just, um, the actual pen- penalty of losing your, your track position. Uh, yep. so, <clears throat> um, I think that it, it really, um, I don't, I don't mind the policy with it. I mean, I hate what happened to Bubba. It wasn't his fault at all. It didn't seem like the position that he was in, I'm assuming that that's probably where we're segueing into Bubba's scenario. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, he got spun. There's quite a penalty in that. And then he also had to serve a penalty. Um, so it was almost like he got, you know, double whammy there on that. Uh, you know, is that enough for me to want to like throw out the whole rule and just say that he could have just kept ripping through there? I mean, I don't know. So then what happens next time when somebody gets spun, they do a complete 360, but they stay in the gas and they gain spots because it's yep. still a braking zone down to a first gear, 30 mile an hour chicane. Um, it does make it not a judgment call. I will say that. Right. Which and it I does eliminate NASCAR. eliminates NASCAR from a judgment call, which is great. Yeah. 
if if you're NASCAR, just I I think that you're con- you're trying to you know simplify your officiating process. So, um, I don't I don't hate I don't think there's anything wrong with our uh, our current rule structure there. All right. Well, we'll leave it as is. We've solved it for you. We've answered Good. the question. Don't change it. Hey, internet. It was a big discussion. Guess what? We're not changing it. We decided. I, I, you know, I have the feeling that I am. Am I kind of in the minority of the the public discourse on that? The internet, I think, from what I you know, you never know because the most vocal are just the ones that are angriest, right? Um, right. But the, you know, I've seen both sides. I I did find it an odd ruling. I remember when we first came up with that rule and it was said to me and I was like, uh, but everywhere else in racing, just give the spot back. <laughs> but there is discussion there. And I think with how, how much contact happens in NASCAR, that is a bit of a tough, a tough thing for NASCAR because it just becomes such a judgment call and ruling in it. And where, where are you when you went off and then, you know, if you fire off in their full throttle and end up crossing into that zone, but you've gained five spots because you're going full throttle and then you get back, like right. you go back to that spot. I mean, there's, there's probably too many ways to mess with it as opposed to just straight cut and dry. You go in there, you're coming to full stop. Yeah. The only thing I'll say is I do think it could cause a little bit of hesitation in the braking zones and such um, because you have that, that such a big penalty if you get it wrong. But mm-hmm. I don't know if that's been a problem. So, yeah. you know, you just don't want to screw up. Uh, let's talk about the Cup Series uh, elimination, the playoffs. They also are an elimination race at the Roval. Unfortunately, Kyle Busch, Brad Keselowski, Bubba Wallace, and Ross Chastain were all eliminated, uh, which brings up our brackets that we'd filled out before the playoffs started uh, between you, myself, and our producer, Josh. Um, all of us had Bush and Kyle Bush going into the round of eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of us had Blaney out by the round of eight. So we have all been wrong here. Other than that, um, I had Busher in the round of eight, so I, I'm, I'm smart there. I've got Larson, Bell, but I've got Keselowski and, and Bush, who, who obviously didn't make it. Um, I think that I, uh, I think I picked the right ones at least in the round of eight. So I've got Byron, <laughs> Truex, Hamlin, Larson. Those, I think those are the ones that matter the most. I think Busher could spoil it. Um, that's Dale Jarrett's pick. Cause Busher. Yeah, I think Busher could spoil it. So I don't know. What we'll a clear year, man, for him. It's pretty incredible. Pretty amazing. Yeah. I think that's, a, he's, I like seeing, you know, I think of AJ in that similar capacity, Chris Busher, like someone who has been through multiple cup seasons of not massive success to then get this success and to see how they, what they do with it. I think it's very cool to see. So to see Busher, you know, now one step from the championship four, that's a pretty amazing achievement. And yeah. uh, I think he could do it. He's only three points, I believe, behind Larson. So he could be a spoiler, sure. I'm looking at our rundown right now, and you have SMI bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> what? I, I've got okay. I'm gonna be nice here, but Marcus, as in Marcus Smith, head of SMI, my man. We got to do something about the bathrooms in some of these tracks. Texas, Charlotte. You go in the garage, and these bathrooms are the Xfinity Cup and Cup. Two of the sinks of the three sinks that are in the Cup Series garage bathroom, two of the three sinks did not work. <laughs> did not work. It's like, come on. 
we got to I, – I personally want to start the bathroom initiative. Talladega, the bathrooms can be uh, a little bit of a, a situation, but that's how I see. Um, I, I want to make this a positive thought sentiment to say, hey, maybe no one's thought of this, but maybe we should just look at these um, <laughs> because it is just – some of them are are you know so abused and look neglected in so many ways that you're like this this isn't a good look, and we also have a lot of sponsors and VIPs that come to these tracks and they want to be in the garage and they want to check out the haulers and everything and then they go to those bathrooms and I'm like yep this is what you're dealing with and you know that's unfortunate so let's work on that let's it, think about the bathrooms even must, if that's be mobile bathrooms that's fine it it must cost millions and millions of dollars to build and maintain really nice bathrooms for as much money as goes into these events and the high level of people that pay corporations that pay to join, be a part of these events and help fund our sport to have a dirty bathroom. It just must be so expensive to maintain a bathroom <laughs> that we, uh, we just don't have it in our <laughs> repertoire quite yet. <laughs> I it must be something we don't realize in the bathroom jump. You know, has, my family it's is just in real estate. Be, it must be like it's just it's impossible. It's impossible. It's too expensive. It's not possible. It, yeah. You can't do it. There's something about public bathrooms, I guess, versus residential bathrooms that that must just increase in a thousand x capacity and cost. <laughs> because I, I think a lot of people out there have built a bathroom or renovated a house, whatever. And and yeah, I, I don't think it's in the millions. So <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting. Moving on. Uh, I did get the opportunity to do something I have not done in a long time, by the way, this weekend. What's that? Uh, I got to go to the cup race on Sunday with no job or agenda on that day. And so oh. I was able to walk around like a fan. And I did that. And it was Where'd quite you watch an race from? experience. So I started down the garage and you know, then went on pit road before the race, forever, And then I went over to this area in turn three and four, which was called the um, – Oh, now I, oh, I can't remember. Oh, the blind spot, which was this cool setup with like a bar and all this stuff. And I just sort of observed from there for a while. It was cool seeing uh, that perspective and just seeing what people were, you know, doing there in terms of going to the bar and going up top and seeing the, the race from different areas. And then eventually I meandered over to the backside of turn two, uh, the oval turn two. Mm-hmm. I got my crew chief, Patrick Donahue, and watched the race. And it was just a lot of fun. You know, it was a really cool experience. Um, and to see, you know, just sort of all these different vantage points and see how people are interacting with the event. There was, a, I felt like there was a lot of people there. I did feel like it was a very, very good crowd. That's um, cool. Yeah, and I, you know, I got the opportunity just to sort of like see this from that perspective. And I felt like I came away from there from a higher level thinking this is a great product. Like if you were not as involved in racing as we are, to be able to look at six cars running in a line and think, oh, they can't pass. If you're looking at six cars running a line and thinking, well, that's cool. They're so close together. How's that? That's amazing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. To me, that's where the product seemed amazing. All the cars look great. The presentation of the teams is great. You know, from this other perspective of just sort of looking at it from a higher point of view, I was like, you know, this is, this has the underpinnings to all that, what it needs. It just wants that, you know, more attention. You you go to the race for the experience and to see the things in real life. It's hard to keep up with a race from the track. Mm -hmm. The best way it is, the best way to consume a race is maybe, um, is, is, uh, 
on TV, you know, from television and, and yeah. to get the story and social media, follow it along with social media and have the NASCAR app pulled up with timing and scoring. That's the best way to kind of understand what's going on. Um, and that's how the teams do it, right? They sit on the pit box. They don't mm-hmm. want the crew chief doesn't watch the race from the, from the roof. <laughs> he watches it from the pit box with tool with his technology. Right. And that's the same way, you know, everybody else should watch a race if they're trying to understand what's going on in the race. I, the best, you know, the, the going to a race in person is something that, um, is, is about the experience. So it's, and I felt that I can see that hundred <laughs> percent. And I, I felt like that at that, from that perspective, it's a great, it was a really cool experience walking around and just, and I went specifically to areas where I felt like, okay, this is a fan area. Like this is, you wouldn't get have, you didn't need a hard car to get where I'm at sort of thing. And I could feel that idea of like, this is fun. This is cool. These are groups of people that came out here just because they're like, this is an experience. They don't know anything. They don't care about racing. They weren't wearing racing gear, but it was like, this is fun. I'm going to come to a race on a Sunday. It was a beautiful Sunday. The, the, you know, the smell of race fuel is amazing. Burnt rubber, all that one smell I did find out, uh, discover (laughs) was when the 47 kept going by, I started smelling the smell and I turned to Patrick and I'm like, what is that smell? And he goes, burning carbon. I was like, Oh, that's right. Cause I'd had that one time in a Xfinity car. And then about 15 laps later, the 47 car was erupted in flames. <laughs> that <laughs> was insane. Yeah. Did you so see something was burning before that? I'm telling so, you, his car would go by and it was smelt. It smelled like straight up carbon fiber burning. Um, so not, you know, obviously he was needed a priority. Number one is to get out of the car, but you know, when that, that camera shot, the live camera shot of him, you know, off the right front, looking mm-hmm. at his car and it showed the flames sort of shooting out from the right front tire of the car. That was, you know, his fans were still on cause they have, Oh yeah. There's in those cup cars, there's, um, rocker fans that cool a rocker. I, I want to I'm, I keep trying to say rocker panel, but it's yeah, more of like a, tu- a tunnel, right? Yep. And they have fans in there to keep air flowing because they were those cars are having overheating issues. And so you run those fans at all times. Well, the fire was obviously coming from there or on one side. It was going, it, it must have been going through that tunnel because with the fans on, it was like pointing a leaf blower at a bonfire, right? <laughs> oh, my God. And yeah. that had a, I would imagine, played a very large role in the, growth of that fire right yeah i mean the fire was going to grow no matter what and that car was going to burn down no matter what but having those fans on and for for whatever reason those fans must not have stopped or died quite yet they ran for long just long enough to help fuel that fire um <laughs> you know in hindsight's 2020 I, I would never go back and be like trying to tell him what to do He's, his priority needs to be get out but like yeah those fans need to be turned off <laughs> it was uh, so the maybe uh, you know mind was was, what's for my drivers fans out doing? there that are listening or myself, you know, if you're in, in that situation, if your car is on fire and you're coming to a stop to get out of your car that's on fire, turn the fans off. Turn the power <laughs> off. Um, and that's it a might, good point. you know, it might buy you a little extra time uh, getting out of your car. That is a good point. You know, he the time it took him to get out was a little scary too. It, it looked like he was still in there. And, yeah, uh, he's a tough guy, and so he didn't show it on his face. I don't know. I haven't. I might send him a text and see how he's doing. Yeah, I played kickball with him the other day. He's also a hell of a pitcher in kickball. Oh, he's an athlete. 
He's a hell of Ricky an athlete, and I, man. Ricky, this is hell of an athlete. R- totally off an topic. Athlete. Ricky and I used to play <laughs> racquetball um, like several times a week together. And I suppose we probably quit playing because I wasn't enough competition for him. Because <laughs> the best way for us to have a pretty even matchup uh, was if he played left-handed. So no way <laughs> he would play left-handed uh, and we could match up pretty evenly. And uh, when he played right-handed, I couldn't beat him. Why have you never invited me to play racquetball? <laughs> no, you played racquetball. I didn't, I've never been invited. This is, this is so, I'm so offended right now. All we right, don't hang out except for the pod. It's a, it's a fake relationship. <laughs> I just texted him. Okay. This is a faux friendship here. You heard it first here on the Money Lab. It's a faux friendship. Let's move on. Um, and, to, and you can bring it back up if he texts us before this, how he's doing. But some news out there that Josh spotted on the, uh, the Reddits. Um, something is happening at Auto Club. There are signs indicating that a construction entrance has opened. Now, this mm. doesn't mean the short track potentially is underway. It could just be demolition. But something's happening there. Well, what do you generally think things start with demo- demolition. Uh, demolition has to happen. Some, some <laughs> level of demolition. But I will say NASCAR has um, – ha- they haven't really given us an update since in a while on what their plans are with the Speedway. So yep. I think that there's some – I saw some posts on online of you know exactly what part of that entire property has been sold and potentially how much space there is for a speedway and it seems like there's still potentially space for a short track you know a a miniature audio auto club speedway to be built Mm. um so i you know and then actually maybe taking a step back for some fans that don't know what we're talking about auto club speedway two mile racetrack um really a heartthrob of a track for most drivers and it's as it's aged and gotten character a lot of fun to race on um is in some incredibly valuable real estate and nascar i think is making a smart decision of uh developing on that real estate and uh taking a pretty good business opportunity there and maybe even turning it into just as good if not of a better racetrack uh for the area so they had released plans years ago on a potential short track really tight paperclip mart like high banked martinsville style racetrack you would say so yep. basically taking auto club speedway turning it into a miniature auto club speedway and gave us some plans for that but then haven't done a whole lot since then so um seems like some things are moving obviously auto club losing its date or if if maybe temporarily um so that'll be kind of an interesting thing to watch out of if there's miniature version of auto club speedway and if you like miniature versions of racing things um Hmm. well i got fantastic news for you parker what is that you need to check out spoilerdiecast.com with one of the largest inventories in the industry they have over 800 unique products currently in stock including diecast miniature versions of real race cars and apparel offerings for NASCAR, dirt sprint cars, IndyCar, and F1. And with the pre-order system in place, you can be sure to get your hands on the latest diecast releases without the long wait. What's even better, all orders ship same or next day. Great on shipping. They offer free shipping on order, orders over $20. Plus, if you use the promo code MONEYLAP, receive free shipping and 5% off all orders. I know that I signed a bunch of diecasts. Um, hopefully, there's still some left. So what was that? Uh Oh shoot! I don't have that written down. What was it? Spend over fifty dollars and you get a, a Landon Castle. Yeah. 
That's what it was. Yeah, it was a Voyager. It, it was over fifty dollars. <laughs> get a get a Voyager car signed by me. So um, check it out if you like miniature versions of your real race cars. Maybe we can get a miniature <laughs> version of of a miniature the, version of Auto Club Speedway. I would, you know that that actually would be a really cool like model to have around in your office. Diecast cars yeah. are cool, but diecast racetracks would be really cool. Mm, whole new business venture here at the Money Lap. It's a lap. <laughs> Let's it's do it. Diecast lap. Uh, speaking of die, spoiler diecast, I had a fan come up to me this weekend who she is a big fan <laughs> of Money Lap, uh, but she had just bought some diecast at spoiler diecast. Used our code Money Lap and was excited to receive her signed Lightning Castle Voyager car. So oh, awesome! It works. It's working in real time. Yeah, <laughs> she's. So I'm not she, just talking uh, about it. Yeah, no, it's not. You're not talking to the void. People are using this. They're utilizing it. It's awesome. Um, and as you mentioned, they don't just do NASCAR. They have the largest selection of all diecasts, including Formula One, which is where we're moving into next. And this is our next set of topics. Uh, I thought you were just going to read the ad read again. No, 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 no. It, it kind of sounded like you were, <laughs> you were just going to do it again. I just thought it was a fun way you to can. transition. No, it's just, it just no, no, no. It's just a good give another one. Maybe they'll just send us more money. <laughs> just keep reading it. <laughs> and for the next thirty-five minutes, it's just going to be constant sponsored podcast ads. <laughs> That's actually the best podcast ever. Just actually, okay. Wait a second. Real quick story before we go to Formula One. I found this podcast many years ago that someone was like, yeah, you got to listen to this podcast forever. Or, or somehow it was on Twitter saying like, this is a podcast to listen to ever. So I go to this podcast and I swear to God for the first, it's a 22 minute episode for seven and a half minutes. It was straight ads. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? Who in the wide, who ever listens to this would ever want to like go behind this? And somehow so, this thing is doing well, but I think maybe- it was a complete like a complete scam where they were just getting people to go listen <laughs> and then getting paid on a CPM or something complete. Maybe scam. we'll just, maybe we'll do an entire episode where, cause you know how people love our transitions from the, from the <laughs> podcast discussion to the ad reads. We'll yeah. just do an episode where we're reading an ad read and it sounds like we're going to transition back into the episode, <laughs> but it just transitions to like just a seamless transition into another ad read. <laughs> And, and it was like right worst. when the ad read starts getting boring, we'll make it sound like we're gonna start talking about the cup race this weekend, and it'll just whip back into a. <laughs> oh my gosh! Worse, our five star ratings would just tank immediately at that time. We'd be down to one star in no time. <laughs> we just bludgeon people with ads. Oh my Assault God. Right, the earbuds talk about with ads. One. Okay, so Formula One raced in Qatar this past weekend. Yeah, you know who won. It wasn't a shocker. But the big shocker was a lot of controversy surrounding multiple topics. Uh, The first topic that's come out of the races itself was the actual immense heat. Now, this was a big topic amongst race car drivers because we all like to say who's driving the hottest cars and who's the manliest, basically, Um, if you like that term, or the toughest, whatever. The Guardian, which is a uh, media publication over in England, reported that the cockpit temperatures exceeded 122 degrees. Now, you had multiple drivers who uh, – Logan Sargent, who came into the race fighting an a illness, could not complete the main Grand Prix. Um, it was uh, – what's his name? Uh, one of them threw up. Wait, what's, who, who threw up? Um, Esmond Ocon. He threw up in his car. 
from the heat, apparently. Um, you had so many drivers saying it's the hottest, toughest race they've ever done. Except for Fernando Alonso, who, of course, is a legend and got out. And was He pulled the old Ron Horner day and said, get up, boys. You're making us look bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which was amazing. Uh, Lance Stroll could barely keep his head up. you know. And, and so let's talk. Let's dive in this a little bit. We had um, Jimmy Johnson, who did a tweet on this because Joseph Newgarden tweeted that he was genuinely interested in seeing some cockpit data comparing the F1 race car of that day versus the hot human IndyCar events because a lot of people believe that those IndyCars are possibly the hottest cars there is. Even Connor Daly told me that. And now add in that they have no power steering in those IndyCars, so they have immense physical strain. Uh, With the aero screen, they just get no air, so it's a really tough deal. Mm -hmm. Well, Jimmy Johnson said, I'm with you and would love to have at NASCAR enter the conversation. Here's my basic opinion since I've had a chance to drive all three cars, basically comparing the heat. IndyCar is hotter than an F1 car. A NASCAR is hotter than IndyCar. Pretty self-explanatory, you would think. He said, G-loading and power steering demands are not factored into my opinion, just cockpit temps. So, with this, 122 degrees in the cockpit would be basically a a 90-degree day in a NASCAR stock car, Mm -hmm. give or take. Um, Not the hottest. No, um, not the hottest. Not the hottest, but not the coldest. Not the coldest. The hottest we have seen, at least that I have registered and known about, is right around 150, if not 150 degrees plus in NASCAR stock cars before, which Mm -hmm. is immensely hot. Immensely Um, hot. So, but you got to, one thing to consider is I don't believe Formula One drivers run cool shirts. They do not. That's another point. Yep. Um, Obviously, not all NASCAR drivers run cool shirts, and I've run plenty of cup races in my career at 140 degree cockpit temperatures with no cool shirt on but the Mm -hmm. cool shirt makes a big difference huge um i do think indycar drivers are running cool shirts nowadays some are i believe they are some are and they also have air hoses now as well but i think that the um the yeah and the other thing too is i don't know what f1 drivers have for helmet uh air either they don't have any they don't have any no so so that's why Plus, it's really the like to me. Yeah, the cockpit is hot. Like, uh, well, first of all, they're in Qatar. I don't know what the temperatures were in Qatar, but it if it was 105 degrees outside, it's not that hard to get your car to 120. (laughs) You know, just by just by being in a cockpit, even if it's open air. You know, the heat of the car, the interior of everything, um, the seat heating up from the the engine and all the stuff, the chassis and everything. You know, it wouldn't be that hard to get your cockpit to 120 degrees, even with just open air, if the outside temperature is 100 plus. So, um, and then on top of that, no cool shirt, no helmet hose, no cautions. Nope. Um, and, you know, physical load on your body and the driving those cars around that track. Um, so the effort is a lot higher. I could totally see where, you know, the actual cockpit temperature just plays a small role in the abuse that those drivers had to endure. Um, and let's, well, let's talk about that because I think you and I both have experience in really hot race cars. Now the hottest race cars, of course, are going to be NASCAR stock cars because they're closed. The engine, you know, is right there at the firewall. You have the exhaust and the way it routes around underneath and the heat, the ho- like the heat sink that happens with the metal. Now we've been designed one, we understand heat, and I always think heat is a bit mental in terms of you know you you can get better 
in your mental approach to it. You also get smarter in your hydration, that sort of thing. I think a lot of teams and drivers have gotten very smart about the the benefit of having a driver that's feeling better at the end of a race, hence the cool suits that have become basically commonplace no matter what the temp is outside. You know, the the seats that have air flowing through them, the air hose, the air conditioning boxes that run it cool air to your helmet, all designed to help the driver over a long race. You know, you know, NASCAR cup races can be well over four hours. Uh, an F1 race is not going to be. So there's differences there. Now, a NASCAR stock car, you will not experience the G-forces you mentioned. But one of the biggest things I find when I through my years and as all this cooling stuff came about and the differences in the technology around helping the driver stay more with it uh, was that to me, one of the biggest things was air. And, you know, if I didn't have at least air being pumped through my helmet and such, when it got so hot, it felt like it was hard to breathe. And so mm-hmm. that's where I definitely emphasize with the these F1 drivers where some had tried to open their helmet, but when they did that, they're going 200 miles an hour and they're getting sandblasted in their eyes. So I believe one of the things that probably hurt them the most, aside from the heat, was that you have immense G-forces, which are making your heart rate, you know, you're, you're physically having to work very hard. And then two, mm-hmm. you can't get, it feels like you can't get air and you can freak out. Right. And I have to think some of the drivers went through that exact moment of it. They couldn't get fresh air. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's those those guys aren't typically used to using the tools that we do for managing that heat. So, um, they will, uh, they will be doing it soon though. I can guarantee you that. (laughs) Uh, I I wouldn't be surprised to see damn cool suits. Why not? You know? Absolutely. Well, the the funny thing is running it. The, the funny thing is, um, even if the cockpit temperatures were 110 degrees or 105 degrees or hundred degrees, mm-hmm. um, the cool shirt can definitely provide a benefit. And if those, now, if there's anybody in motorsports that's capable of doing a, you know, a, an analysis of where the, what is there to gain, it'd be F1. Um, those yep. engineers are pretty smart. They will figure out if their driver getting their driver's core body temperature down 10 degrees. Um, if that's worth the additional couple pounds they have to carry, um, or placement of of that weight, I guess. What are we um, going to do if they? What if they do? What are we going to do when they decide it's not worth it, and then all the NASCAR teams come to us and tell us that we're not allowed? To wear the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, because uh, on the NASCAR side, you know, I don't think we're entirely scientific about the actual gain of it, right? It's a, I think it's yep. a five to seven pound thing that you got to carry. Yep. Um, and it's not that you can't remove that weight from somewhere else. It's not a net gain of five to seven pounds, but it's the fact that you have to put that weight in a certain spot. It's, you know, the driver's wearing half of that weight and it's pretty high up in the car. Mm -hmm. Um, so from a CG perspective and ability to move the weight, you can't move the weight. So, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that there's that much. I'd have a hard time going for an F1 car. I mean, an F1 car weighs probably half as much as a nascar yeah yeah right so you know mm-hmm. five to seven pounds or maybe they can come up with smaller devices that carry less water i don't know um but let's just say it's five pounds that that has more of an impact on one of those cars than it does ours so uh um, i'd have a hard time going back i don't want to go back <laughs> Lynn, i don't want to go back i don't care if it's 60 degrees out i wear the damn thing Oh, I wear, yeah, I mean, that's, I, it's in it. I wear it. Once they, once they put one on me, I had a hard time taking it off. Yeah, I was like, well, yeah, even like, my, <clears throat> I did one race last year, the dirt race last year in trucks. 
where I didn't wear. I was like, I don't need it. It's a 150 lap race. And I got pretty hot in the race. And I thought, yep, that's the last race I'll ever do without one. That's in the car. <laughs> that's it. I just decided. I had a race last year too that I, I chose not to wear because I was losing faith in our cool shirt and thought it didn't work mm-hmm. very well. And so I just said, I'm not going to wear it. And I did was not a happy camper after the race. <laughs> I know the feeling. Uh, speaking of unhappy campers, Lewis Hamilton, George Russell have a incident. Lap one of Qatar. Uh, Hamilton goes spinning across the track. He is out of the race. Initially, he sort of avoided guilt, but later admitted fault. I'm going to just make it very simple. Uh, he's the outside car. He's turning into the corner with all the available ability to not use the track that he used and just squeezed his teammate. It was his fault. Yeah. Ooh, disagree, please. Um... I guess, yeah. I think um, it's it's uh, it's funny how things turn into fines and a placing well, fine. Fight, he got fall, fifty thousand like for he got fifty thousand dollar fine for running across the track. Oh, that's that different. Yep. Yeah, that's different. Um, yeah, the issue with him and his teammate, I, I guess, I, I don't, I don't think I entirely <laughs> disagree. Other than. Um, you know, we we race in a world where it just it's just a matter of how does it how does it come out the other side, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, nobody cares who's at fault. Yeah, it's like you don't really care who's at fault. The guy that's at fault is the guy that ends up in the garage, um, whether it was really his fault or not. Uh, Welcome to NASCAR. So it's it's just a, there's a pretty big cultural difference there for me to look at something and say, oh, yo, this is who's at fault because I'm more interested in the outcome. And I'm not saying that's, I don't know, that's kind yep. of a harsh way to look at it, but that's that's the kind of the roughneck stock car culture. Mm. Well, let's move on. Uh, some fun news. McLaren had the fastest stop in F1 history at 1.8 seconds uh, at Qatar, which is nuts. If you watch the video, it's honestly insane. Uh, go check it out. Maybe we'll link it in the, the episode. Uh, description but yeah it's just wild i saw zach brown tweeted or and also instagram the photo of it and it's just or the video and it's just it's unbelievable so that's a fast stop um have they been getting faster or has yeah, everyone still finding stagnant no they've been sub they've been around that two second area for a while you know and these occasionally i think we've seen some of these sub two seconds but i mean what 1.8 seconds that's just ridiculous. did we now here's the crazier part hold on huh? here's the crazy part if you didn't put fuel in a nascar stock car right now they change four tires with what one tenth the people and they're down they they we've had sub nine second stops mm-hmm. so, so they're only they're less than eight x slower with with a fraction of the people well, not it's not that's not the people isn't even the apples to apples because our guys can't have to jump over the wall and run um, around. Yeah, you gotta wait till the car stop. Like all this. Well, F one, I guess they gotta wait for the car stop, but they our guys have to jump over the wall, you know, and approach the car. Where in Formula One, they're already you know positioned. Um, did did we? I, I wonder if uh, if they learned anything from NASCAR being in Le Mans. And uh, seeing how fast winning the pit crew competition, <laughs> us bringing our uh, our our boys over there and maybe <laughs> taking home some hardware. 
<laughs> you never know. It, the motorsports that's world probably, is more connected that, than little, people realize. That's a little silly to say that. It might it's be not a stretch. Like F1 woke up and goes, oh, thanks, NASCAR, for telling us we need to make faster pit stops. But should <clears> we – here's a question for you. Should we dive into what I believe is the stupidest thing in all of motorsports? <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's not just the stupidest. It is straight up the dumbest and most irrelevant addition to motorsports in all of its 128-year history, 26-year mm. history. Track limits. <laughs> this is going to be the hill I die on uh, eventually <laughs> in all of life, and that is that this not – I have yet to hear a professional race car driver, someone who has been paid to drive race cars, ever say to someone, you know, I wish they would just restrict where we could go off that corner. <laughs> it doesn't effing happen. We need to get the and officials yet, involved. <laughs> yeah, we need to get the officials involved. I would love a judgment call to be made on this. It doesn't happen. And yet somehow – if you look over the course of the last 20 years, we have let this thing seep in from a bunch of people who have never driven race cars. Like, it's the only way I can assume it to where it has now eroded the basic premise of what a race car driver is meant to do. And people who don't see this truly do not understand what it means to drive a race car. Because if you go back to the history, the genesis of driving race cars, right, and go to maybe the more modern version of what we have now, but say, let's say the 60s and where tracks start to become – tracks that we sort of use now and yet they didn't have chicanes the job and purpose of a race car driver at those tracks was to use every available inch of whatever surface they wanted to go the fastest way around a given lap right that is the mm -hmm. job of a race car driver go the fastest route you can possibly find over a given lap that means using every available room bit of surface whether it's asphalt grass gravel or moon rock i don't care you use it but what has happened is we've changed we've now had these series of tracks that have shown up in the last decade or two that have gobs of asphalt runoff because mm -hmm. it became evident that gravel and that sort of thing wasn't the best way to slow cars down well therefore in response to that they decided well that's because the track is how the track designer designed it that is the fallacy here a track mm -hmm. is not how the track designer designed it. A track is how race car drivers decide and discover what is the fastest route around that racetrack. So track limits go against the very fabric of what actually you should be doing as a race car driver. And therefore, this whole idea of having arbitrary lines of which you can or cannot cross, how many tires can be over them, is the single stupidest dumbest most asinine thing in the history of motorsports and if you support track limits you are not only an idiot you do not like racing that is my th thing here with that i'm going to say this formula one needs to get away from this they need to set an example for the rest of the motorsports world and and enjoy the idea that if their drivers can find a faster route through a corner on the exit Without cutting the track that we've already talked about cutting with NASCAR, and they have a pretty good formula for that. Obviously, you can't make the track shorter. But this whole idea of having the, the stewards having to go through times that cars were over the, the line and then having these arbitrary lines, I'm sorry, but it's the single stupidest thing there is. And I, it's making me really genuinely not like to watch F1 at times because I can't stand it. 
it, it that's my stance. I love it. Great job. I couldn't agree more. Track limits, to put it more simply, in my own words, it, uh, having to have track limits is just a result of poor track design. That's all it is. Yep. 100%. Granted, I appreciate advancements in safety. I appreciate, you know, that, that paved runoff is safer than than gravel or easier to manage, pull cars out of, you know, not every track should just be lined with walls on both sides. I get that. I appreciate those things. But my, I guess my response to that, my, my oversimplified response to that is do better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you can't I agree. Paint a yellow line on the outside of a corner exit and then say, just don't go over it. Um, that's not, it makes no sense. Unless you put no alligators sense. on the other side of it, I, we're, <laughs> we're going to go over the, we're going to use up the racetrack. Um, it, it's just, it's so crazy. And there, you know, you get these fan, these supposed fans. I can't call you fans because if you're fans, if you, <laughs> you, you point to someone going off in a runoff area that because there's a curb, you then decide that's not the shape of the corner to me. That mm-hmm. is the ingenuity of being a race car driver and finding more speed, and there should no, be no rule. That was the way they designed this piece of asphalt and allowed us to run on it within the walls that are there and the constraints of physical constraints of a racetrack, not this arbitrary deciding that because a curb was painted somewhere, that's mm-hmm. the end of the corner. It's like it's not. It's not even close to the end of the corner. Um, you know, The only places I, I would agree with this line situation is Daytona and Talladega because in a lot of ways it's – more of a, a you know deal where those aren't the racing surface because of the way those races are designed that that type of racing mm-hmm. i still think though you could get rid of those and you probably have pretty fine racing you know i think mm-hmm. that is a that is a rule that was a reaction to obviously some severe wrecks but you could even look at those rules and say you know that's they don't really need that right we don't mm-hmm. need this yellow line rule um can i so Hold on, can, real quick. I'm just going to end this one, one thing. I just oh well, I, I, you ended on track limits, and I got one more little teeny soapbox. But go no, ahead. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. We got. We have more to go into on track limits. Actually, we 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 have, we do have some others out there that do agree with us. But my my last bit of that is to say that people point to turn one at Watkins Glen with NASCAR and say, well, this looks ridiculous because everyone's going off in that runoff on the exit. Mm-hmm. And my question to them is, my my response is, what looks looks ridiculous? Why does that look ridiculous? Because you say painted a curb down on the right side. Okay. But you have all this asphalt. So why why is that not the racetrack? We we go to where the wall is. I'm sorry, but that's that's how they designed it. It's like, what are you talking about? Anyway, go on your go on your part. What's your soapbox? <laughs> I was just uh wanted to make a um a language clarification on curb and curb and the European mm. spelling of curbs and the American spelling of curbs and some of the social media uh, and public discourse that I've seen this weekend using the European designation for curb in reference to an American racetrack, an American curb. Uh, My (laughs) interpretation of this is that you uh, should use the right verbiage of curb and the right region and type of racetrack to identify the type of curb you're talking about. My mm. thought is that this is a similar. Sorry, this is a silly soapbox to be on. <laughs> what is happening right now? It has nothing to do with anything other than I was I was seeing this and thinking to myself, it, I feel like this would be like making a Spanish tortilla, 
with potatoes and all the you know everything that goes in all the glory that goes into a spanish tortilla and then calling it a frittata which is italian <laughs> it was all that for that it was such a build up yeah it's, it's like no when you're in italy you're eating frittata when you're in spain it's a tortilla is this a hooked on phonics episode what's happening we <laughs> I guess you could call it a Spanish omelet, but it, that's more like if you're in America and you make a Spanish tortilla, you could call it a Spanish omelet. Mm. Would a pizza, you know, sometimes they call pizza flatbread. What's the decide? What do we go there? Um, I don't know. I think that the, <laughs> I think that might have more to do with the type of uh, uh, the type of crust that they're using. The type of dough. Come to the money lab for your <laughs> wonderful food so terminology please, advice. Uh, yeah, if you're referring to the curbs on an American racetrack, call them curbs with a C, because yeah. that's how that's the the region that you're in. And when you're in Europe, call them curbs with a K. <laughs> Thank Don't, you for uh, that. <laughs> Another group that uh, we'll be talking about. We're moving on from this. So we do have some supporters, and one really important supporter, by the way, in the track limits. Uh, discussion and that is FIA president Mohammed Ben Salem, who said the venues like the low sale circuit and the Red Bull ring must address track limits problems or risk losing slots on the Formula One calendar. So maybe we have some friend, a, a fan out there at the highest levels of F1 who thinks this is as ridiculous as we do, um, and that this is just not not the fix, right? Basically telling the tracks, hey. Figure out a way to make this not look so stupid that we have to talk about these arbitrary lines and re you know maybe redesign the track or whatever so that the the track limit is because you have uh you're you know physically you can't go there that's a great track limit in my opinion uh whether that's because of gravel or grass or a wall whatever just work on it um so we'll see if they if they do that. Also, just to cap this off, the Red Bull Ring had twelve hundred track limit violations as well. So dumb. Just just the dumbest thing ever. So if you like track limits, turn off the money lap. Leave us, please. You're an idiot. <laughs> You're not welcome here. <laughs> You're not welcome. That is <laughs> awfully bigoted of you, Parker. We, I'm sorry. I'm that are, adamant. I'm we that are adamant. Uh, we are open to all all kinds of viewpoints if you want to nope. call it a curve with a k yeah that's fine to the charlotte roval then you know what do it if you believe that racing um should be dumbed down to track limits and dumb ideas like that uh then i guess do it but the only we're thing gonna i disagree wholeheartedly <laughs> as we have <laughs> I can't. I don't even know if I can condone that, but I'm gonna let it go. I should just cap this off with one more thing. Par Parker is a uh, one-issue voter when it comes. I'm to a one-issue voter. voter. It's, it's an election year next year, so yeah, I'm definitely. Yeah, uh, I should say once again, cutting the course not the deal. Don't want that. But this whole runoff on the exit corners thing is just ridiculous. Uh, one just capping this off because there's gonna be some fans out there like, oh my god, you didn't mention this. Mm -hmm. Yes, some of the Qatar issues were exaggerated or you know made worse by the Pirelli tire situation, which resulted in turns 13 and 14 having to be repainted. So they basically then went even further to, re to paint an arbitrary, even a further arbitrary line of 
the line and the curb and they made the paint everything look the same as the curb so it just looked like they extended the curves but it wasn't because it was just paint so that they could stop the tires from having those high frequency vibrations and they were only allowed to do 18 laps i believe per tire stint Mm -hmm. um which because they had some tire issues happening there wow once again very nice use you know in that situation i get it um but once again Maybe if you just let them cross over the curbs real quick onto the other asphalt straight, they wouldn't have had those tire issues. So mm. there you go. I'm moving on. <laughs> <laughs> we did find Josh out there uh, found one other fun thought experiment from the F1 world um, to give an example of, although I'm a big, I've been a Sergio Perez supporter, but Hang I'm, on I'm a struggling. Second. Hang on a second. But what? Are we about to have another hypothetical point situation that <sighs> definitely does not exist in real life and would probably yeah. not be the same head <laughs> had it existed this way? <laughs> this one's diff- this one's interesting. Um, you know, there's some haters out there for Sergio, <laughs> which once again, I'm gonna. This is actually gonna more so in in support my point that the best number two is a Sergio Perez because. <laughs> It allows Red Bull to act as if he doesn't exist. And if he didn't exist, <laughs> that's what this person figured out. They could have won the re- the world championship. They would be leading the world championship points by 100 points right now, even if Sergio wow. Perez just never showed up. Oh, my God. <laughs> it shows how dominant Max Verstappen has been. Um, and you know what? It also shows that a good number two is a serious number two. And that's that that reinforces my point in Formula mm-hmm. One. So I think you're uh we can we, you know what we should probably revisit this conversation about a number two when and if Red Bull makes a change and makes a decision. Mm. So maybe by the end of the year or off season, whenever there's a driver change, let's talk about it because we talked about this on the pod of uh, several episodes ago, maybe a couple months ago about um, what is a good number two? I just have this thought that like, it should be competitive, right? The two of them should be competitive with each other. They should be able to run equal equipment, but you've made good points that like, no, the goal is to get one car to win. And so the number two's job is actually to assist in that, not, not really compete in it. Um, mm-hmm. which we could be saying the same thing, you know, like by thinking, okay, the number two could still be the number two, but he's got to be within, a half a tenth of the number one driver, not a half a second. <laughs> um, but I don't know. It's a lot of, it's very interesting. It's, that is a big cultural difference in F1 over NASCAR where, you know, NASCAR there's teammates, but they don't operate for the service of one driver officially. Yep. Yep. Right. Where in, in formula one, they unapologetically serve one lead driver. Mm-hmm. Um, or it seems to be that way. So, very interesting stuff. We'll have, definitely have to keep an eye on that with Red Bull because, uh, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately for Sergio, he, you know, it seems like he will be probably doing something different soon. <laughs> Poor Sergio. <clears throat> yeah. Yes. Uh, I just want to say one thing before we go. We're going to end the pod here. Uh, we're launching something cool on the Money Lap social channels, which is this idea of who was the Money Lap winner of the weekend over all mm. major motorsports. Basically, whoever wins the poll by the largest percentage margin uh, compared to the other top-level motorsports. And uh, no surprise, the winner this week 
when you get this pod, you'll see it out on our socials was Max Verstappen. Um, and you can Wait, see the separation there. So that he doesn't just win it every week. Well, you know, we're hoping some point someone gets close to him. So <laughs> you never know. Because hey, it's our game it's, and we make up the rules. How about that? Yeah, we make up the rules. And you know what? It's If someone goes to Bristol and wins the poll by – or Martinsville wins the poll by three-tenths, uh, that would be percentage-wise on the lap, but ginormous. So <laughs> that's probably not going to happen. That's probably not going to happen. But you never know. So that's the pod. Thanks for listening. Peace, Landon. Thank you so much for listening to The Money Lap. Please subscribe and review us on your platform of choice. And be sure to join our newsletter for the best five minutes in motorsports delivered directly to your email inbox every Tuesday and Thursday. And you know what? We love bringing you all this content for free. So what do we ask for? Simply for you to subscribe and to let us know every single thing we are doing wrong. If you want to leave us those sorts of opinions, please go over to YouTube, subscribe there, and leave us comments in the comment sections below the videos. We might just respond. We might put you on the next podcast. Most of all, we just love the feedback, even when it's really mean. Thank you for listening.